I read what you said about tithing, and here are my comments. Adding to the gospel of Christ comes from the devil, and you know it. All the blessings I receive from our mighty God are free, received by faith, not by paying 10% to Satan. May God rebuke him. Stop perverting the gospel of Christ. If you want to imitate Abraham who tithed, I'll be glad to circumcise you myself. (laughs) Uh, Just come on down. I'll also expect you to imitate him in offering sacrifices, the altar, the ram, the blood, and, and do not forget your firstborn, you hypocrite. I do love you and pray that the demon would depart from your wicked teachings. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. (laughs) Now, if you knew Randy Alcorn, and you knew the life this man has lived, and his love for God, and the commendableness of so much of his life and message and ministry, you would wonder, how could anybody bring themselves to say that to this man over a topic that they may disagree with? Right? Listen. You may disagree this morning, right? But here's, here's some facts. Here's some facts, so let's all, let's all be prepared. One, if you're already like, yeah, mm-hmm, I, I knew this was coming, uh, the fact that you're differentiating about this topic should disturb you, okay? It may generate an email back to me. I hope it doesn't sound like that. But it, it, it should capture you that this topic captures you in such an interesting way. And the reason why it does, by the way, is the same reason why the Bible has so much to say about money. It talks a lot about money. In the New Testament, some, some folks have, have said, and I think accurately, Jesus had more to say about money than he did about any other topic upon which he spoke. Because money matters to us. Fact. The Bible says a lot about it. These passages that we're going to look at, say something about tithing and about how we give to God. Fact, the American church member gives on average 2.4% of their income. That's the number. Now, maybe either side of that, but, but that's just where people are. When you average out what people in American churches are giving, it's 2.4%. I'll share a little bit of my thoughts about that later. Um, fact, people get a distortionate amount of passion for this subject, right? They just come into this subject disproportionately affected by it in comparison to other very important issues. Fact, which gives me great liberality to preach this subject today to you, fact, if I were to ask right now for a show of hands, of people who have been in this church for any length of time. And I would just say, I'd like for everybody here who has ever been visited by a pastor or an elder to address your giving to the church. I would like for you to raise your hand. If I did that, this is exactly what the room would look like. Not one hand would go up. Because we, we don't knock on your door and pressure you to give. That doesn't mean we don't believe in giving. It doesn't mean that we don't preach the word of God in giving. But a lot of times, some of the emotion of coming to this topic is, is arguments with straw men. It's arguments about how people have handled this and how that's, you know, legalistic being imposed upon churches by, uh, uh, all right, I have great liberty to preach this because I'm not coming to your house. You can disagree with me or agree with me, but I'm not going to knock on your door. 
And none of the other leaders will be knocking on your door saying, oh, you know, we've been reviewing your giving record, and you're not even close to 10%. Uh, nobody in here has ever had a visit like that. And we don't have any intention of creating that visit. So if you choose to do differently in this category, it will be your choice. But it doesn't mean we're not going to preach on what we think the Bible says. And so just bear with me this morning. Better than bearing with me, join with me in being honest in what we're looking at today. Let's just let the Bible say something to us. Let's not feel like we've got to defend where we're coming from. All right, let's look at Malachi here. Last week, if you weren't here last week, you really need last week's message to get the right heart attitude to even opening this discussion up. Last week, and I can't re-preach the message, last week we just reminded ourselves that Malachi is not trying to teach individual subjects. This is not an encyclopedia of topics. This is a man who's been sent by God to a people who have lost an appreciation for the honor, worth, and greatness of God. That's who these people are. And having lost that appreciation for the greatness of God, there's a bunch of things that they're doing that he says, this is an example of that, and this is an example of that, and this is an example of that. So we can't even have a conversation. I think, as a matter of fact, if you want to talk to me about giving, you study on the greatness of God, and you come back and present that argument to me first, and then let's talk about whether we should tithe or not. But let's just not start with a tithe. Let's just not start with whether we give. Because if the object of my affections is distant and God is a distant being and I'm not overwhelmed and I'm not undone by him, well, then I've got a bigger problem than whether or not I'm giving any money to him. My heart of worship is already gone. And so the subject isn't whether or not you got a checkbook that writes numbers to God. It's whether you have a heart that's blown away by God. That's what Malachi is concerned about. But he does get specific in this practice about tithing. Malachi 3, verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? All right, two different categories there. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. All right, God opens this conversation up in this particular area with an interesting accusation. He says, you are robbing me. To rob means for you and I to take into our possession that which is not ours, which is a very interesting insight about the tithe. You know, we have this sense about us that when I give something to God, it becomes his. Until then, it's mine. So, you know, how, how would I be robbing you, God? I've just got what I've got. You know, this is my stuff. And, you know, if I choose to give it to you or if I don't choose to give it to you, uh, what's that got to do with me robbing? Okay, that's kind of how they're ask, answering this. But God's accusation is you're robbing me. You have in your possession my stuff. 
That's what God's saying. Where does God get this idea? Well, I mean, it's his idea. Leviticus 27 says, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So every tithe of the land, of the seed, of the produce, it's like God already owns it. It's already his. And so for you and I to have in our pockets what should have been departing from us and going back to God, God says that's, that's robbery. You have in your possession stuff that doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. Now, here's, here's an issue, and I want to I bang on this drum quite a bit because I think it's an issue that gets lost in this discussion. Is the tithe confined to being a law thing? Right? That's where we, we kind of get into some real issue here because wherever you go with answering that is where you're going to go when you put your feet in the New Testament and try and figure out, how do I give? Is the tithe confined to being a law thing? Right? Here's, a, here's a common thought. This man says, when it comes to giving, my own preferences, opinions, and training make it hard for me to approach relevant texts with a clear and teachable mind. I think it would be helpful for all of us just to admit that. There's stuff about this topic that, that makes it a little challenging for us to be teachable in whatever position we hold. He says, on the one hand, I know that the tithe is law and that in Christ we're no longer under the law. That's a very important way to approach this subject. So he's coming to this topic and saying, I know that the tithe is law. And that as a New Testament Christian, I'm, I'm no longer under the law. Okay, now you have a philosophy now at work in you. All right, now let me ask some questions because I want to toy with this idea a little bit today. I think I put these questions in your outline. Does that mean that things mentioned in the law are under some automatic cancellation policy? Do we footnote all things in the law with, but in Christ we're no longer under the law? Right? Is it, is, this is a philosophy. This is a how you approach the Bible philosophy. So we're New Testament Christians. We're no longer under the law. We, are, we live in a new day. When we do, this is all true. Does, does that mean everything that was mentioned in the law has an asterisk next to it that says that had an expiration date on it? As a matter of fact, to continue any of that would violate something, and preachers who do that need to be taken to task. All right, you really don't believe that. You don't believe that philosophy. Right? Monotheism is in the law. Idolatry is in the law. Marital faithfulness is in the law. Does anybody go, well, I'm not under the law anymore, bro. So, well, so that means marital faithfulness out the window? Marital restraint is in the law. In the law, they were not allowed to marry outside of the community of faith. Does anybody think that doesn't translate into the New Testament? That now, well, that's, that's under the law, man. And, and we're not under the law anymore. All right, so do you understand the philosophy that we're bringing to this subject? This is not a tithe issue. It's a how we read the Bible issue. It's how we interpret what the Bible is saying to us. Randy Alcorn says, the strongest arguments made against tithing today are law versus grace. But does being under grace mean we should stop doing all that was done under the law? Is that what being under grace means? 
I mean, let's, let's, not, let's not go somewhere in this category that we won't go in a bunch of others, which I think sometimes we do here. So, so question, is the law, uh, is the tithe, is the tithe a law thing or is the tithe an honoring God thing? And I actually think I can make a much better argument, and I'm going to today, that the tithe is an honoring God thing. When I try to figure out where does the tithe come from, if you say it comes from the law, then, then you haven't read your Bible carefully. It doesn't come from the law. Right here, let's just look real quick. Genesis 14, verse 18 through 20. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. All right, you remember where we are in the Old Testament here? We are about 2,000 years before Christ. Abraham has come in. A battle has been fought. God has given Abraham this victory. And when you, when you were victorious in battle, you took the spoils of war. And so God has given him the spoils of war. And so here Abraham's got all this wealth and all these possessions that he has just acquired through these victories over these kings. And then out comes this guy named Melchizedek. We discover here and as well in Hebrews that he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, blessed, right, Melchizedek pronounces a blessing upon Abraham. Blessed be Abram by God Most High. I find this title interesting right here. Possessor of heaven and earth. He is the landlord. He is the owner. That's who this guy is and that's who Melchizedek presents him as. Right, so blessings from the landlord, Abe. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Okay, Abraham, how'd you get the victory, Abraham? God did this. How'd you get all this stuff, Abraham? God delivered it into your hand. He's the source, the possessor of heaven and earth, the one who owned it all anyway. He has given a big chunk of it to you. And then it says this, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's the word tithe. Abram gave a tithe to Melchizedek, the priest of God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, the landlord, the guy who represented the one who owned it all. Something was in Abraham. Now, I can't explain to you where the origin of that is. I'm just telling you that the law is not the origin of the tithe. Because we're 2000 B.C. here. The law doesn't get given until about 1450 B.C. So do the math here. We're about 500 years, maybe even more than that for Abraham's life, removed from the law even being written down yet. But in Abraham's heart is a recognition that God most high, the possessor, the one who created everything, he's the, he's the originator, he's the source of everything, has blessed me, and his response is to bless God. How? By just saying, hey, can you just deliver this note, Mel? Can you take this to God? It's a big thank you note. It's, a, it's from Hallmark. It even does a song. Uh, can you just tell God thank you so much? Uh, there's something in Abraham's heart that knew I respond to God with a tenth of what he has given me. That's where that comes from. Now, he's not alone in that practice. Genesis 28 Maybe a hundred years later or so. It says, then Jacob made a vow, 
saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, right? In other words, if God will provide for me, God will be the provider in my life so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Right, so here you have another example, not from the law, but from two men who walked by faith and were responding to God's provision in their life. God brought provision. They responded back to him. Abraham with the goods right before his eyes. Jacob with a heart to say, God, as you provide for me, I will give back to you out of that provision to honor you. Now, see, I, I see this not as a law thing, as, you know, you heard a human rights, it's kind of as a God's rights thing. Right? Ain't, ain't nobody representing God's rights, is there? And we're all about human rights. What about God's rights? What about the right of God to own and possess everything and to have everybody who uses or touches his stuff acknowledge that? Doesn't God have the right for that? And what's interesting here is both of these men knew a way to acknowledge it. And that way was to give a tenth back to God. So thus we have the creation of the tithe. Now what I see in both of these situations where I don't like, you know, please, if you're reading a Bible that has a barbed wire fence at the beginning of Matthew and it looks back at the Old Testament and says, you stay right there. And there's armed guards on top of turrets. Like anything from the old covenant trying to make its way in here. And we're just taking stuff out. If, if that's how your Bible is put together, I don't know. You know, it's not, is it? That's not how the Bible is. It's not this open hostility like, hey, there was no grace anywhere until we got past this point right here in the Bible. Then grace got introduced to us. I see grace right here. I see Abraham and Jacob responding to the grace of God. Right? Do you see where the tithe is? Look, look at what the tithe is not. The tithe isn't these guys saying, look, God, I'm, I'm working on this deal. You're going to really like this. I'm getting all my friends, my family to buy into this thing. We're going to take 10% of our stuff and invest it in you, and, and then we want you to kind of like take care of us. How's, how's that sound, God? How about, you know, and we're almost there. We're probably about 5% right now. So I know that once we get to 10, we'll be able to purchase your favor in our lives. That's legalism. If you're looking for a definition for legalism, that's legalism. That's not the tithe. The tithe is Abraham saying, God, you, for reasons in you that I don't quite understand, have chosen me as an object of grace and mercy and blessing. And I went and faced these three kings in the valley, and you gave me victory, and you gave me all their stuff, and it is in my possession. I have it right now. So I give back to you in response to your grace, not to create grace. When you start trying to create God being favorable toward you with anything you're doing, your church attendance, your Bible reading, your prayer, your given 10%, whatever you're doing, that's legalism. You can't make a perfect God 
be inclined towards sinful, imperfect people by anything you do. You can only receive from him by grace. So do you understand this, the tithe is not grace? Do you, do you understand the origins of the tithe scream otherwise? God had provided, and they gave back to God out of a response of grace. Deuteronomy 14, verse 22. Here's another little insight that I wouldn't want to leave in the Old Testament. It says, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. A little bit later it says, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. What does a tithe help me accomplish? It, it helps me to put God in a place that teaches my heart to honor him to appropriately fear him. He's the one who gives me my next breath. He's the source of provision for everything about my life. The tithe is designed to honor God that way. That's what Abraham did. That's what Jacob did. That's what the Israelites were doing when they began to tithe as a nation. They were being called on to honor God as the source of their life. Is, is, that, is that something that grace is opposed to? I mean, do we get into the New Testament and we say, oh, you're not under the law. You know, this, this reverential, awesome sense of who God is and you fearing him appropriately. No, no, that's an Old Testament thing. Is it really? I thought God was the same yesterday, today, and forever. I know in my casual, over-Americanized heart, I could use a little help and having an awesome view of God. I could use a little, can you use a little help in that? I mean, be honest here today. I mean, we're just so casual, you know, I mean, we've talked about this, we walk in, there's songs going on, you know, and there's God, and there's, you know, there's us, and we're, you know, bumping shoulders, and, and you know, we're, we don't know what it is to stand before God in awe of him. I could use a little help in that category. And the tithe helps me, right? And again, Whose need is being met by the tithe? Mine. I give a tithe and it creates this reverential awe of God in me honoring him by doing that. And my heart needs that. I hope you don't think yours doesn't. Let me clarify one more thing in this hostility between grace and, and the origins of the tithe. Uh, and that would be clarifying the giving of the tithe Versus the use of the tithe. Right, when I read the Bible, I find the giving of the tithe to God. Then I find the, the Bible describing what to do with the tithe later on. Anybody have any idea what Melchizedek did with the tithe? No. Anybody have any idea who Jacob even gave the tithe to? No. Right? So there is this use thing that gets spelled out in the Old Covenant in the law, Numbers 18.21, to the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. So at some point on the calendar here, God gives a revelation in the law and he assigns the tithe to the Levites. This is very important because I think some people really miss it here. He did not create the tithe for the Levites. 
the tithe already existed. The tithe was a means of honoring God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. It was not a system created to meet the needs of the Levites. God simply said the tithe that already is, give it to the Levites as a means of supporting their ministry. Do you understand how important this is? Because if you think that, where'd the tithe come from? Well, it's, it's, it's the law. It's, it's what was made in the Old Testament to support the whole Old Testament system. Uh, no, no, it was not. That's not the origin of the tithe. There was no Levitical system when, a- when Abraham gave his offering. Melchizedek didn't have a whole tribe of people to take care of. It just seems like he's him. There's no revelation about how that group of Levites was to be supported. Jacob, we've got no idea who Jacob was giving to how he gave the tithe, but it was just 10% of what God provided went back to God. It left his hands going back to God. It was not a support of a system. All right, what, what that starts to do in us when we misunderstand this it, is it generates in us that we give toward the object of the use of our giving. Right? If I think that the Old Testament tithe was toward the Levitical priest well, then I'm looking for a cause to give to now rather than honoring God who's provided for me wealth and life and breath and everything. Rather than just honoring God, now I'm trying to evaluate, should I give to that? Should I give to that? I think that's, I think that's an unbiblical way to give, partially. I think that falls under the category of contributions and offerings which is a legitimate category, and I'm not going to develop that a whole lot, but I'll mention it. Um, you shouldn't be, as, a, as, a, as the people of God, you shouldn't be figuring out when and how you're going to give based on what we present as opportunities to give to. It's like we stand up and, you know, maybe you, you've been in here week after week after week after week, you haven't given in months, but we mentioned that... Uh, Hey, there's a trip to the Amazon. You know, there's lots of lost people in the Amazon. Oh, I'm all, I'm all about lost people. So, yeah, I'll write a check for that. Yeah, those lost people need to get saved. The gospel needs to go there. Or there's orphans. Oh, there's a thing going on in the orphanage. Yeah, I'll, I'll give toward that. Listen, what are you saying when you haven't given, haven't given, haven't given, haven't given, haven't given, and then we get inspired to give to something that we claim is worthy? Well, wait, what about just giving to God all along? Listen, I love orphans, and, and, and I love reaching lost people, and I love all the mission that God's given us as a church, but I'm not called to love those things less than I love God. I give to God as a statement to God. You understand? That's where the tithe came from. It's not, it's, it, it's not a system tax. It's not how we fund. You know, it's the revenue stream for the Levitical system. I'm serious. I think that's where people think it comes from. So, you know, interesting. If you read in the Old Testament, there was a great day of restoration. Hezekiah restored the people after a period of waywardness, and they began to tithe again. And so one day Hezekiah is walking, and it says they tithe. In the cities they tithe, in the country they tithe, everywhere they were tithing to God. And the Levites gathered all those tithes, and it was, it was too much. They had too much when the people actually tithed. 
And it, they were gathered, the Bible says, into heaps. And so Hezekiah walks around and looks at this and makes a comment about it. The Levites said the people have abundantly brought their tithes. And there's these heaps here. And notice where the Bible doesn't go next. Right, the Bible doesn't turn around and say, and then there was a special legislative session called. And they reconsidered next year that we don't need the 10%. It's going to waste. Let's kick this back to 7 8% maybe. Next year we're not collecting 10 because it's just sitting around in piles. It doesn't go there. Nor was there a special session called for some kind of a disbursement rebate. Oh, we've collected too much taxes uh, and we're not using it all. So let's just let's give it all back. It was a tithe. It belonged to God. It didn't belong in people's pockets. It didn't belong to them. It was a means of honoring God. It was not a system tax. It was given to God. And the people took delight in giving to God, not in evaluating, right? Not in calling the, Levitic, the leaders of the Levites in and saying, uh, can we see next year's budget? You know, we just need to determine how we're going to be given next year to the budget, Levite budget, because uh, you guys look like you had a little too much last year. That's not the tithe. Remember Abraham? Jacob, they didn't have anybody like that to give to. All right, let's go back to Malachi here. Verse 9. I'll make a couple of brief comments. You guys didn't start my clock, so I could be here until dinner. (laughs) I won't. Verse 9. God says, you are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. All right, how how do we cross the barbed wire fence with this one? You people are cursed. All right, what does it mean? Let's stop for a moment and really think through. What does it mean for the people of God to be cursed? Does it mean they're no longer the people of God? No. Uh, Does it mean that God will no longer interact with them in any favorable way? No. Uh, I mean, the reality is the whole reason why they're being told any of this stuff is because they are the people of God. The reason why they're being corrected by a messenger named Malachi is because God considers them to be his people and he is going to make them right in how they live their lives. But he says along the way, oh, by the way, you are right now, you right now, you're under a curse right now. Not a curse that says you're not my people. So, you know, be careful that you don't take that word curse and spread it out into every realm of theology. Say, oh, you're cursed. See, well, that's just it, Keith. You you just can't take this kind of stuff into the New Testament. Okay, well, listen, they didn't go where you think it went either. Them being cursed didn't mean that God divorced them. It didn't mean that they were no longer his people. It didn't mean that once they were his people and now they're not his people, once they were saved, but now they're not. It doesn't mean any of that. It means God is opposing you right now. God, the God of favor, is now in a posture in his favor to correct you by opposing you. Just back up a few books into Haggai. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. And you'll find in Haggai, the people are walking around scratching their heads. They're saying, you know, we're working, we're bringing home wages, but it's like we got no money. We're eating and drinking, but none of us are content. We're not, we're not happy about things. What is going on here? Why does life feel this way? And God sends Haggai and explains to them why. He says, here's why. My house, which is to be the center of your existence, is being neglected by you. While you're busy doing your own thing with your own houses and building your own world, but you're neglecting mine. So here's what I've done. You're bringing money home. You're 
bringing wages and crops home, and I'm blowing it away. As fast as you can bring it home, I'm blowing it away. It feels like you're putting money into pockets with holes. And as soon as you earn wages, you stick them in your pockets, and you go back to use your money, and we're all out. Life feels empty. Why? And God clearly says, I'm the one doing that. The source of your empty feeling life is me. Do I find that in the New Testament? Yes, I do. I find it in Hebrews chapter 12, if you'd like to go read there. What son does the Lord receive that he does not chastise, that he does not discipline, in order that we might share in his holiness? No discipline for a season feels pleasant, but rather painful. So I have a God who will bring opposition into my life. He will make my life feel awkward, cumbersome, unrewarding, a little bit dissettling, painful even. I think that's what Malachi is talking about here. You guys are under a curse. Now, if they were really under the complete curse judgment of God, they wouldn't even be hearing from God. They'd just be facing him as judge. He wouldn't be saying, I'm trying to fix you guys. Are you listening to me? You're under a curse. I mean, this is God's grace upon them to be corrected here. Verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord. Bring the full tithe. Let me just make a quick comment on that. I think it's interesting that God makes a point, and actually Jacob does as well, of calling it the full tithe. Why is God interested in the full tithe? I think mainly because he knew our nature. He knew that, that we would adjust that number given a chance. Right? We, would, we would adjust it down. We would choose 2.4% given the chance before we would choose 10 because that's what's in us. And I think the way in which the tithe is designed by God to cause those that he provides for to not put their hope in stuff and temporary settings and personal abilities and my ability to, uh, to prepare for the future, I think what God has done is, is he has required 10%, the full 10%, because he knew that if he just said, just bring me something, I'd bump that thing down and bump that thing down and bump that thing down to where I'm bringing something, but it's insignificant, and now it's not having an effect on me. Some of us give in a way that doesn't affect us. It doesn't require any faith for us to give. It doesn't show up as affecting the way we live our lives. There's nothing missing. There's nothing adjusted. We figured out how to give to God like a bump on a highway. It doesn't even reduce our speed. That's not God. I think God wanted it to reduce your speed. I think God wanted it to significantly capture your attention. I think uh, there's other stuff I could be doing with this money. Uh, I think there's other needs in my life besides this, which I think is where he goes immediately next. Look here in verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. All right, now I think we've finally gotten to the heart of the matter for these people. What is it that for them generates the non-tithing lifestyle? When does that begin to happen in our lives? Well, it happens because we feel like our need is too big for us to 
part with anything toward God. You know, I've got, I've got a lot of need, you understand. God, I need that 10%, right? This is why I think God makes this argument to these people. He's basically saying, I'm aware that you have a need, and I'm, I'm prepared to swallow up that need. You're very aware of your need right now. I just want you to trust me with your need instead of trusting that 10%. That's what they were doing. Their hope was in their 10%. Now, listen, if there ever was a people that, that we might be sympathetic toward, remember, these are people that they just returned from exile. They've come back to a land that's ruined, houses that have decayed and fallen to pieces, a city that's been burned to the ground, no commerce, there's no economy to talk of. You know, the, the business that would have been in place for years and would have had familiar contacts going on, that's gone. The trade with people passing in and out of the land, that's gone. Nobody passing through land anymore. They're avoiding this place. So you've come back to this land, and you can make an argument like never before that we can't afford to tithe. Do you understand? I mean, look at my house. Look at my business. I got got kids to feed. I got a lot of need going on in my life. God says, I know you have need, but you bring me the full tithe, and you watch me swallow up that need. Why were they not doing that? Because they were trying to meet the need themselves. The very thing God does not want his people doing. Right? This issue of the tithe, it's, it's a gracious thing God does in our lives. It brings so much release into our life and faith toward God. It, it's a good thing. You want to be just messing around and getting rid of it. If I were to ask you, what, what are you doing right now to, to trust God financially? I mean, I know many of us would, would be in a place where we're just wondering how to get to the end of the month, how to afford the next year. You're looking at stuff coming up and payments that have to get made and needs in your family. And you're, you know, how do I, man, I'm stressing out over this. How do we do this? Uh, what, what do you do? What do you do right now? If I said, what do you do? to trust God financially. Some would probably say, well, I try, not, I try not to worry. It's hard, but I try not to put my thoughts on that and just worry about the future. I just try to live day by day. Good. That's good. You should. I try to remember all the ways that God has been faithful to me through the years. And I know I've got a need again, but God has met me in those needs in the past, so I try to call that to mind. Good. I would agree. Good. Keep doing that. Uh, but what about Malachi's advice right here? They were facing needs that were way over their head. They were facing needs much bigger than them. And Malachi's advice to them was bring the full tithe to God and trust him. Commit to give to God in a way that takes faith for you to do it and trust that he will show up in an amazing way in your life. That's Malachi's advice. Right? That, that should be our advice to each other. Maybe not in every moment, but in significant moments. In that regard, it's not a wrong thing for you to be asked, do you tithe? You know, you're all nervous and fidgety about finances, and I'm all worried. You know, in this context, it'd be safe to say we will either rob God to meet our needs or we will trust God to meet our needs. Right? That's, that's what was happening here. Those people stood in that moment. Need is huge. 
withhold from God so that I can meet my need, or launch out and give it to God and then watch God meet my need. That was their options. So this is not just some 10%, let's argue about 10% and, and how to give. All right, let me take, take us through a few thoughts here. Why do you practice and promote the tithe? Here's why. One, because I find it in the Bible and because of the way I find it in the Bible. That 10% is in the Bible, and the way it's presented in the Bible doesn't, doesn't give me sort of an allergic reaction to using it. Like, it's there. It's available for me to contemplate, consider, and it originates outside of me. I didn't impose it on the Bible. The Bible introduces it to me. So, Keith, why do you use that? Because it's there. And because it's never criticized by God. So I don't have a reason to be hostile towards the tithe. Right? I put there, I think I put this in your outline. I find it a helpful starting place. And in a category where I'm weak and easily tempted to have small faith and fear-oriented motives, I can use help to keep me in faith. Right? My, my number could become 2.4% really easily. I've got, I've got a bunch of mouths in my home that represent need, that swallow up like locusts everything that I can produce in my life. It's like a swarm. When my wife walks in with bags from Walmart, you can hear it. It sounds like buzzing swarm. Is there, is there edibles in the kitchen? I think they have a strategy meeting just before it arrives. They all meet. They huddle up. All right, listen. I think we can eat everything she just bought in 24 hours. <laughs> I can top that 20 hours. No, you'll never do it. 20 hours. All right, let's go. And into the kitchen they go, and it's like, and it's just gone, just gone like that. It's like, that was supposed to last. <laughs> uh, so there, there's neat. My heart is chronically tempted to be afraid that I'm not going to be able to provide for my family. I tell wives this a lot, that when you're walking with your husband, you need to be very, very aware of that. You know, even if your husband's Joe Cool got it all together, because God has assigned him a role of being a provider, he is scared to death of the day he won't be able to do it. For whatever reason, he's scared of that. I'm scared of that. And so it would be very easy for me to see the advantage of 10% coming my way. I could, I could, you know, throw that 10% number out. i got seven kids. I could lower that number like that, man. I could, I could get full-hearted agreement with 2.4% in a moment because I could spend every dime of that yesterday and still be looking for more. So there's kind of the secret. You're not going to ever escape that. John Piper says, if we are going to set aside the command to tithe in these verses because it feels slavish and legal and because we want to promote freedom in our giving, then let us beware of jumping out of the frying pan of legal slavery to a command into the fire of carnal slavery to fear and greed. Sin lurks at both doors. Can I really warn some people? Because I, I know, again, I'm, I'm responding to Randy Alcorn's article. There, there are some people that the second you get too specific about giving, 
you know, claws are going to come out and there's a fight on your hands and all of a sudden, quite honestly sometimes, all of a sudden people who have never defended a doctrine ever are going to kill you over this one. I mean, there's going to be blood on the floor. It's like you, you don't even defend the atonement like this. I think I could preach another Jesus and you wouldn't do this to me. But you touch this and, whoa, that's legalism, brother. You're trying to put me under something. Ah! It's like, whoa, whoa, simmer down a little bit there. And when you're done simmering down, go crawl in a closet and question your own heart for a second and find out whether you're not fighting for your money because you're afraid. And you've jumped out of that legalistic frying pan right into the fire of a heart that's motivated to make sure that I'm going to have enough in the future or our ambitions that are in my life. Be very careful that you're, that you're not all of a sudden this theologian to save the church from shipwreck. All of a sudden, uh, I don't know, I think I'd be a little more concerned about what might be lurking there. I'm seeking to honor the revelation God has given in the Bible that he doesn't view in a negative manner or condemn. Do you understand? God doesn't condemn the tithe. And right now, if you're, if you're a defender of this, your mind is racing right now, and you can find one example, and you're misusing the verse. I can tell you right now, you're misusing Jesus correcting the Pharisees right now. You went to that one? Is that where you went? You tithe mint and cumin. What was he correcting there? Was he correcting mint and cumin? No, he wasn't. Watch. We'll see it in just a second. He's correcting something else. Randy Alcorn says, we don't offer sacrifices anymore. So why should we tithe? Because sacrifices are specifically rescinded in the New Testament. As the book of Hebrews demonstrates, Christ has rendered inoperative the whole sacrificial system. But where in the New Testament does it indicate that tithing is no longer valid? There's no such passage. With a single statement, God could have easily singled out tithing like he did sacrifices and the Sabbath, but he didn't. This is why I say this is a matter of Bible interpretation. It's not a tithing topic issue. It's how you handle the Bible. Now, you do realize there are some churches today who you would have never seen musicians here on the stage. There would be singing, but there would not be musicians. And do you know why there would not be musicians? Because you can't find musicians in the New Testament. And there's a barbed wire fence between the New Testament and the Old Testament, and those poor musicians just couldn't crawl across. All the musicians that were being funded in the Old Testament to sing and to make joyful sounds to God, all of a sudden, that's a bad thing. Can you help me, really? I mean, Bible interpreter, is that really the way to interpret the Bible? Well, it doesn't mention it in the New Testament. I'm not sure I want to come down there. How about this helpful thought, right? You've got to start somewhere with giving. How about this thought? One commentator says, how are we to show our gratitude to God other than by giving back a portion? If 10% was considered an acceptable portion by God as an expression of gratitude then, why should we view it differently today? Do you understand? I take pleasure in being able to give 10% to God because I see it as a revelation that God acknowledged meant something to him. It's not my idea. I don't have to have one moment's hesitation to think, does God like my 1%? Does he, you know, God gave the idea that 10% means something to me. So I, I take joy in being able to do something that God has revealed. It's a good thing. He likes that. Why 
might 10% as a benchmark, or, or we might consider 10% as a benchmark, just as we consider 15% a benchmark for tipping. It's saying it in that context. Isn't that kind of pathetic? Right, some of us are giving more to the uh, sovereign provider of a meal in a restaurant. You know, I am the waitress almighty, and I am bringing you food, providing you a meal. Oh, 15% goes to you. It's like it's understood. The extent of the customer's gratitude and appreciation is demonstrated in the size of the tip. It would be considered the ultimate rudeness or the consummate insult to leave no tip at all. So it is to God if we return no portion to him. In addition, there are occasions when the situation calls for a contribution exceeding the benchmark, which is all over the Bible as well. All right, reason number two. What am I doing here? Why I promote and practice the tithe. Two, I don't prescribe to some notion that in the realm of grace in the New Testament, there are no specifics and all is defined by the individual's willingness. Randy Alcorn says, I've found that To many people, the term grace-giving simply means give whatever you feel like. Okay, and some people say, well, yeah, what's what's wrong with that? Well, Well, again, it goes back to a practice of Bible interpretation. Is that how you interpret everything in the Bible? Or just this category? Right, so when you come to this, what if we transferred this from grace giving to grace living? Right, so in all these categories of your life, um, just, just do what he says here. Give whatever's in your heart, whatever you feel like. All right, so you're married, grace living. Um, you're going to stay together? Well, you know, do whatever's in your heart. Does the Bible sound that way? Husbands, role of the husband, role of the wife. Does the Bible get specific on those things or does it say, hey, just do whatever's in your heart. Husbands, you feel like leading? Well, then by all means lead. And if it's not in your heart, though, don't. And ladies, you feel like submitting to your husbands? Listen, if it's in your heart, ladies, submit. But if it's not in your heart, you know, God doesn't want this thing to be legalistic. If you don't feel like doing it, don't do it. Really? Is that what the Bible sounds like? All over the place? The Great Commission. Oh, you know, there's some churches that are really into the Great Commission. Y'all go into all the world, but, but only if it's in your heart to go. Only if you feel like going. Go ahead and go. Or our fellowship. Do you think the Bible's specific about fellowship? Or does it just stay away from that? Listen, if you want to be a part of a church, do what's in your heart. Be a part of a church. If you don't, then don't. And when you come together, if you want to prefer one another over yourselves, listen, if it's in your heart to do that, well, then do that. And if you, if you feel like forgiving one another when they offend you, by all means, wait for that feeling to overwhelm you and then forgive. But if you don't feel that, well, then don't forgive. Do you really interpret all the Bible that way? But somehow when it comes to this category, we do. I, I, I don't think it's helpful. All right, number three, why I practice and promote the tithe. I don't believe the Bible teaches that heartfelt, cheerful giving is reserved for the New Testament saint. While the Old Testament tithers were participating in a legalistic, obligatory, externally imposed burden. Isn't that the bad press? Tithing's this terrible thing hung around the necks of people in the Old Testament. Why do you want to do that in the New Testament? Uh, They weren't doing that in the Old Testament either. That attitude of giving was not acceptable. Right? God clearly said, because you don't serve the Lord with gladness and joy in your heart, he brought all this opposition upon their lives. So God's interested in the Old Testament saint celebrating the possessor of heaven and earth through giving to him. 
this way. Listen to this interesting thought here. You have to stick with it for a second. This fellow writes, In his relationship with Israel, God intended the tithe to be an avenue to blessing. The religious manipulators of Jesus' day turned the blessings into burden. Instead of expressing faithfulness to God and oneness of heart with God for ministry and the poor, the tithe became little more than a means to satisfy religious obligations. How easily the sin of the Pharisees can become our sin too. Effective ministry requires money, money that comes from God's people. Believers need to give for both their own sake and the sake of the kingdom. All right, stop. This is a guy who's arguing about the tithe that he just turned it into a system of support. All right, please catch that. Well, the kingdom needs to operate, the church needs to do, and you need to support it to make it do that. That's fine, and that's true. But you need to give to God to honor God. That's what the tithe says. And look where he goes next. Uh, let's see. When we do, however, we must be careful not to turn blessing into burden. We must refuse to preach tithing as legalism. I, I don't know anyone who teaches tithing as legalism. I don't know anyone, really, who stands in a pulpit and says, okay, I just want you guys to know God's favor is for sale today. Now, for those of you who can come up with 10%, raise it from your family, call your friends, gather some investors, God will become your God. You can buy God into your life. And as a matter of fact, wait till you see what you get. Show them what they get after that. You know, it's like there's heaven and then there's God's going to get on your side. You just got to come up with 10% today, brothers and sisters. All right, can the, can the ushers come? That's legalism. It's you attempting to offer human merit to God to get him to do to you what he does out of his mercy. That's legalism. Please don't misuse that term. And say that the Bible, if the Bible gets specific for one second, that's legalism. It gets specific all over the place. He goes on and says, so what's the alternative? Tithing as worship. Tithing as worship, then, is first an act by which we acknowledge that God is both our superior, the sovereign Lord, and the source of all blessing. Right? Does anybody think that is on the other side of the barbed wire fence only? Tithing is worship. Well, that's the New Testament. All those old people being dragged backwards behind pickup trucks to give. That's what was happening to them. And, hey, that's the system God created. This exacting you're going to give until you bleed kind of thing. But in the, in the New Testament, you know, it's, it's, it's much more cheery and it's worship-oriented and it's from the heart. Uh, all right, without me chasing this, I'm just going to send you on an excursion. The case that gets made for that is, you know, is the famous verses, God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, like he didn't love that in the Old Testament. He, that's a new thing. God just discovered that he likes it when people like to give, but he didn't like it in the Old Testament. No, God has always loved a cheerful giver. And by the way, that 1 Corinthians 9 passage is a very interesting passage to use in the category of giving. You, you, you actually don't want to use it. The situation is not some abstract thought out of nowhere. The Apostle Paul offers a teaching to the church that says, God loves a cheerful giver, so we give cheerfully from the heart as we've determined in our own hearts. And if your heart has not determined, then don't give. If your heart has, give cheerfully. Okay, that's not 1 Corinthians 9. 
1 Corinthians 9 is the Apostle Paul following up on a conversation with the Corinthians where he previously has arranged to come collect some money from them that they have said in their own hearts they had determined already they were going to give to the cause of need that Paul had presented to them. Paul has been bragging to the folks in the north, man, I can't believe this. The Corinthians are coming up with this much money. I'm blown away. And so he's bragging and bragging and bragging and bragging, and and then he realizes, now I'm going to bring some of these northerners down here to the south with me, and and I'm going to go collect what they promised to give. Boy, it would be really embarrassing if I showed up and they changed their minds. And they they gave half of what they said they were going to give. So, okay, here's what I'm going to send messengers ahead of me because I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want them to be embarrassed. I'm going to send messengers ahead of me, and they're going to go and prepare them to give. So these messengers come with Paul's message, and it's a reminder. Hey, guys, remember? Remember what you had freely determined to do from your hearts? Well, please do thus accordingly. Make sure you do what you said you would do, and don't do it begrudgingly. Do it with a cheerful attitude. Make sure you give what you said you would give before because I've been boasting about you and I don't want to be embarrassed. God loves a cheerful giver. Each person should give just as they have determined to do in their own hearts. Those aren't abstract concepts that just say, hey, grab that and just say, well, you know what? I've just determined in my own heart 2.4%. I've just determined that in my own heart. That's not what 1 Corinthians 9 is teaching. And 1 Corinthians 9, by the way, is not even talking about the tithe. It's talking about a need in the body of Christ that was presented to the church. And so quite honestly, they were quite free to say, no, don't want to give. That's cool. It's a contribution. It's an offering. Same thing you find in the Old Testament. You find those passages I put in your outline. There were places where God said, hey, everybody whose heart moves them, give for the tabernacle. Later on, hey, if your heart moves you to to help build the temple, then give if your heart moves you. And if your heart doesn't move, well, then don't give. That's not the tithe, though. The tithe is the honoring of God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. It's not the same concept. All right, number four. Almost done. I find the anti-tithe position produces little convincing fruit for its cause. Randy Alcorn says the pro-grace or anti-legalism trump card rings hollow when it attempts to normalize wealthy Christians giving less than the poorest Israelite. Right? I, I find this, when we cross the barbed wire fence into the New Testament, everything gets upgraded. Everything becomes bigger. Everything becomes more lavish. Right? If somebody, Jesus, how many times should we forgive somebody? Seven times. I mean, seven times, that's a lot. What does he say? Well, let me, let me give you a little upgrade here. How about 70 times seven? Let's upgrade that. We're in the New Testament now. Right? Or, hey, if somebody requires you to carry their backpack a mile, why don't you go the extra mile with them? Somebody wants your coat, give them your shirt too. Right? When I get into the New Testament, everything's bigger. God has revealed more of himself. There's a greater revelation about trusting God and knowing God and the, and the operation of the Spirit in the hearts of believers. So do you, do you actually think that when I look in the Old Testament and I find God comes to a people who don't have the spirit in them and says, I think you guys can give 10%. I think you can do that, and it would please me that you would. And then he gets into the, old, to the new covenant, and he says, but I don't think you guys are quite capable of 10. Really? I don't think you should preach tithing. Well, you know, listen, I can preach what I want, but you preach to yourself, and you're going to give out of your message, not out of mine. 
So if, if the average giving is 2.4%, you're not listening to my preaching anyway. You're listening to yours. So what message are you preaching to you because you're less than 10% or you're free from 10%? Why isn't it producing 14%? Why isn't it producing 23.8%? Why is it producing 2.4%? Might it be because there's a lot more fear in me than I'm willing to state? Might it be that the very thing God is arguing for, to trust him, I'm afraid to do. I have faith to trust God with 2.4%. Now, honestly, 2.4% in America, it sounds like afterthought money. It sounds like what's left over. It sounds like when I'm done creating my future, planning my retirement, providing for my kids' future and education, making sure that uh, we can afford some things that we think are reasonable, not, not extravagant, uh, looking at family vacations and, and just maintenance and upkeep. And, you know, once I've done that and I've bought all the insurance policies that I need, at the end of the month I've got like 2.4% left over. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that to God. That, that's what that sounds like. And it's the very thing that God hates. Malachi is a book about God being put somewhere besides first. That's what that book's about. Giving that way screams, God, let me take care of everything I need in my life, and then what's left I'll put in your hands. And God says, that's backwards. I don't want you living life that way. When I provide into your life, the first thing I want you to do is turn back to me and recognize I'm the source for your life. Your future is in my hands. It's not in your insurance policy. It's not in whether that thing breaks or not. It's in me. Trust me. Well, that's fine to say, but I guarantee you, when you put 10% behind your trust in God, you start really trusting God. There's something about it that really helps you to do that. And I think God intended it to be that way. Piper says, you never read anything like you've heard that it was said to you, bring ye all the tithe into the storehouse, but I say to you, 5% will do or even two. You never read that. On the contrary, Jesus says in Luke 11, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus warns against making the tithe a religious cover for injustice and lovelessness. But he doesn't throw it out. He says, these you ought to have done. All right, last two quick thoughts here. Here's why I promote and proclaim practice of tithe. Giving, like all of life, is about proclamation. That's what we're here for. We're here to proclaim something about God. So just the question I've got to answer is the same question you've got to answer. What does my giving proclaim about God? Do I give to God in a way that makes a statement about him? Or does it perhaps make a poor statement about him? And the last thing <clears throat> I would say is what we see here in verse 10 and 11, right? I didn't put this. I think I should have put this, number six in your outline. The tithe, I tithe in order for my faith to be engaged in what I see in these verses. I want, I want, here's where I want my faith to go in what God says here. He says, thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need, rebuke the devourer, destroy 
He will not destroy the fruits of your soil. Your vine in the field shall not fail to bear. God says, if if you'll turn to me through this vehicle and trust me, I will show up all over your life. Not only will it be financial, but your your appliances aren't going to break as much. And you're going to drive that car a lot longer than you thought you were. And surprisingly, a rebate is coming to you from a place you had no idea where it was coming. You, You start looking for God all over the place in your life because you've invested trust in him. You've taken 10%. You'd say, God, I give this to you as a statement of my gratitude like Abraham of all that you've given me. I give this back to you because you are the source of my life. And I honor you with it and await for you to swallow up the needs that are in my life. I'm looking to you to be the need maker, the need meter in my life. Not me, but God. All right, well, in just a moment, I'm going to ask the ushers to come. This is how we're going to conclude the service. Some of us need to do a whole lot more studying, praying, and thinking on this category than right now in this moment. But here's, here's what I'm doing. Here's why I'm taking this offering right now, right here. And, and I, I think the Bible makes a significant point about money individually, how we handle it, what we do with it. I think it's, it's about worship. It's about trusting God. It's a statement of faith. When we come together here in this gathering, we, we end up, I, I often would love to do the service backwards because preaching is to bring clarity to who God is in our lives. It's to awaken faith in us for the preaching of the word has helped the cobwebs to get cleared and the clouds to get moved out of the way and my own sin and being convicted to get stuff to where ah, I see that right now, right? So preaching is to send you into life and to live for the glory of God. That's what preaching does. We sing in order to make a big deal out of proclaiming the worthiness of God. You should be singing and screaming because in your heart is a revelation of God's worth. We give as an expression of honoring God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. It, it belongs in a service. I know I'm at odds with some, I know there's some people, and, I, and listen, some of you guys have helped me with some feedback, and, and I grant different churches do things differently, you know, there's this carefulness. They don't take offerings during the service. They don't mention offerings. And they've got reasons for doing that, and I trust that they're, you know, being led by God. <clears throat> but when I look in the Bible here, this is a huge, significant event in the heart of every person. And so I, I think it belongs. I don't think it belongs in the sense that everybody, hold your check up for the camera. We're going to project it up there, and so everyone can see what you're giving. No, no, that's, that's, that's not what we're doing. But as the people of God together, the same way that I'd say, and you've heard me say this, so don't act like I'm just picking on your tithe right now. How many of you guys know I've picked on you for not singing loud enough? How many know you've been in a prayer meeting, I'm saying, why aren't you guys praying? Why isn't your heart overflowing with a burden from God for the kingdom of God to come? It's like, you know, this is not just me getting on my tithe horse. I'm getting on the same horse, and I'm riding the same horse in every category. We serve a great God. And if the people of God aren't going to stand and proclaim the greatness of God, it's a, it's a disgrace to God. And there's no one else who's going to do it but us. 
So whether we're singing, whether we're praying, whether we're loving each other, we walk through this back door and we take interest and care for one another, we follow up with each other because there's a need there, or we're listening to the word of God, not to be debatable and not to say, oh, let's see if you can crawl across my brick walls today, pastor. No, that's not why we're listening. We're listening because we want to come into greater agreement with God. We want to proclaim the glory of God. Why do we give? For the very same reason. We give to proclaim God, the possessor of heaven and earth, has abundantly blessed us. Let us give back to him and honor him. Ushers, if you guys would come. Let's pray together as they're walking this way. I guess I might need the band. Father, Father, I trust and I hope and I pray this has been helpful for us today. Uh, Lord, I, I, I don't pretend to see it all right. I don't pretend to, to own the corner on got it all right, see it all perfectly in the Bible. Uh, but Lord, I pray, I pray that you would give grace to us to be appropriately stirred as individuals who make up a body. Lord, people are in different places today. They're hearing this word through where they are. Uh, but, Lord, you have a desire to lead us to where you want us to be. I just pray for grace to be able to be received. Lord, grace to receive your word, grace to have faith, big faith, risky faith toward you. God, when you touch this area of our lives, you are truly touching so much about who we are. And there's so much good in you touching this area. So, Lord, we, we do. We invite your effect on our souls as we give to you today. And, Lord, lead us so that we would feel in agreement with you as we give. Lord, I pray for that to take place this morning and ongoing for years and years to come in this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. My soul finds rest in God alone My rock and my salvation A fortress strong against my foes And I will not be shaken Though lips may bless and hearts may curse And lies like arrows pierce me I'll fix my heart on righteousness I'll look to Him who hears me Oh, praise Him, hallelujah My delight and my reward Everlasting, never fail 